Well, I'd like to begin today with the big question then. Um, do you use your money? We're going to generally talk about money today. Do you use your money as a tool for good and generosity, or do you use it for something else? To illustrate, I have here a toy cash register. It even makes little beeping sounds when it's on. And I remember one summer, my kids were playing with this, and it even opens up, and there's money inside here, a $100 Canadian bill. <laughs> it's toy money. And I remember uh, they set up a little ice cream shop with real ice cream that I paid with my real money. <laughs> and they set up a store, and I came, and, and I asked, oh, can I have some ice cream, please? Well, do you have money? You have to buy it, Dad. It's like, no, I don't have any money. Can you lend me maybe some money? How much does the ice cream cost? $5. It's like, well, can you lend me $5? Well, the lawn looks kind of long, Dad. You can mow the lawn, and maybe we'll give you $5. And so I literally mowed the lawn, and they paid me $5, this fake $5. And then I gave this fake $5 back to them for real ice cream that I paid with my real money. <laughs> now, money means many different things to us. It represents many different things, but even in that little story, we see going on, and this toy cash register and this toy money, even though it's, it's a toy, it represents what actually goes on in the real world. Money represents, perhaps, for some of us, security and status. I wanted to show my children that their dad can work and that he can uh, demonstrate a, a work ethic and earn his, his due. Uh, the kids, certainly, the money represented power, right? Uh, money represents what I like to call the engine oil that makes economy work. Uh, we have cash now, or debit, or whatever it is, and we exchange this cash to, for goods and services. And, and so we need this thing called money before it was bartering, before it was actual just direct goods and services traded. Um, perhaps money, if you understand economy, money, we understand it represents a certain amount of gold. And, and so this thing, this paper, is, is just something that causes our world to be able to turn around. But money also represents our soul's desires. With money, we can acquire what we want for happiness, whether it's maybe a great meal, a certain clothing, a certain home, or whatever it may be. Now today, the simple prayer that I'd like to leave with you uh, that sort of summarizes the, the big thought of today's message is this, Lord, help me to gratefully steward my resources for your eternal glory. This is a helpful prayer. This is a simple prayer. This is a Christian's prayer to pray every day, to have this on the back of our minds every day. Lord, help me to gratefully steward my resources. And our resources aren't limited to only money, but our time, our talents. This is the big idea of today's sermon. And so to help understand how to live this out a bit more, how to flesh it out, I want to ask three more questions. What did Solomon observe about money? Second, how does Jesus redeem money? 
That's what Jesus does. He does a wonderful work of redemption over this thing called money. And how can I be a grateful steward? So let's ask that question. What did Solomon observe about money? To jump right into the text and to uh, not beat around the bush, money, he observed, has the power to corrupt. And we got to take the good with the bad. We're going to start with some of the bad first. Money has the power to corrupt. And as we begin in today's passage, begins to describe this scene. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. He was observing this oppression that is going on, and specifically of the poor, the vulnerable, the ones who don't have anyone to advocate for them and to fight for their rights. And this word amazed here means astonished, beside yourself, just very angry because of what you are seeing here. And so here, how are we to understand this? And he begins to speak of officials and higher officials and higher officials, this hierarchy of officials that are supposed to be watching over the justice and righteousness of the land, but it's being violated. Now, Ecclesiastes and King Solomon, his writings, his Proverbs, uh, they're wisdom literature. And some of it is written enigmatically to get us to think. Remember, Ecclesiastes is like a great discussion guide for the Bible and, and for the meaning of life. It's meant to point us to big questions, uncomfortable questions, and it points us to answers outside of itself. And so here, even this description of oppression and violation of justice and righteousness in this hierarchy of officials and powers over them, it can be taken two ways. First, negatively, perhaps there's an oppression going on of the poor because above them are corrupt officials and above them more corrupt officials. We have seen repeated in history again and again and again where this, through this hierarchy of officials and powers that there's corruption, there's handshaking, there's, there's bribes going on. And who gets the short end of the stick? It's always the people at the bottom. The people who can't fight for their rights, who, who don't have a voice, who don't have someone to advocate for themselves, and yet, and the people on top, they pad their pockets more and more, and they get more comfortable and more fat and more rich and so forth. But also on the other side, the other meaning, Solomon's saying, be careful, because at some point along the hierarchy, there will be someone who will keep you accountable. And that accountability will sweep from top to bottom and you will be found out and there will be justice for those at the very bottom one day. Now Solomon, he is surely pointing us to the ultimate authority, the ultimate highest power who is God himself. And he's warning those who might be corrupted by the power of money because power has, money has that power for our hearts. We, 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 we want more of it, and we're willing to go to that place of compromising our integrity and ethics and so forth if we can have more of it, and even at the expense of those who can't make any noise or ruckus to fight for their rights. And Solomon's pointing us to the fact that one day you will give account. Now, this leads to our second observation and explains why money has the power to corrupt. Money competes for our affections. Solomon goes on to say in verse 10, he who loves money, 
That's the kind of relationship we have with money. It's a, it's a love relationship. He who loves money will not be satisfied. And is that what we look to money for? To somehow satisfy our longings, our need for power, status, security, to, to see a system be efficient in this world work. Now, these two words, to get, put them in perspective, this is the exact same word that Moses uses to describe the great command. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. This is also the same word for love that it's used between two lovers in a very intimate, even physical love. He who loves money. What Solomon is saying is that we can love money like we can love God. And this word of satisfaction, those who love money will not be satisfied. It's the same word that Moses uses in Psalm 90, 14. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. Just as God's love is meant to satisfy us so that we can rejoice in it and be glad all our days, what Solomon is saying is that there are those of us in life, we look to money to fill our hearts in the way that God would. Some of us even, even Christ followers, we can fall into the temptation of setting up this idol of money, looking to it functionally as a God. And so money competes for our affections, our heart, our, our emotional attachments, our, our desires. Now, this is dangerous because what Solomon observes next is that money overpromises. He goes on to say in verse 13, There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand to give to his son. And so when he describes that riches were kept by their owner, again, this, this word, it's covenantal language. I tell you, just as a quick tangent, the more and more I read the Bible, the more and more I see one of the great themes running from Genesis to Revelation is this notion of God being a covenantal God, and we see covenantal language pop up Again and again and again, and here, nonetheless, riches were kept. This is the same word that God uses to speak to Abraham when he institutes his great covenant with Abraham. You shall keep my covenant. You shall guard it. You shall protect it. You shall honor it. You shall seek to do your part to fulfill it. And so here's this picture of this owner, this man with great riches, and he makes a covenant, in a sense, with money. He's saying, I am looking to you. I'm going to bank my life on you, my hope on you, and I'm looking to you. Remember, a covenant is just basically a promise with blessings and curses. And I'm looking to you, money, to come through and give me the life that I long for, to make me happy in the way that I dream. And so these riches were kept by their owner, guarded, protected, covenanted with by their owner to his hurt. Why? Because those riches, as he covenants with money, the power of money as a master is that it makes you long for more and it's never enough. And so eventually he encounters this, this financial opportunity. And at some point, he misses, he can't calculate all the risks or maybe perhaps he's so 
overcome by his, his longing, his lust, his, his greed, that he misses a blind spot and it becomes a bad venture. I know literal people in my life, people who have lost their savings because of a bad venture, because their motive was they wanted more. They were willing to risk because they were driven by this God of money. Now, when it says those riches were lost, that's an interesting word there too, lost. It, it almost means run away, to wander away. And it's like this master of money that he had covenanted himself with basically abandoned him. I used you up for the time that I wanted to, enjoyed myself with you, and now I am just leaving you. I'm abandoning you. That's the kind of master money is. It overpromises. It promises this much, but it only delivers this much. And there's always eventually disappointment if you bank everything on money. And so, as money overpromises, naturally, money underdelivers. And so Solomon, he gets to the point. He cuts right to the chase. He gets to the very end of life, and he distills it all. Final conclusion, as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came and shall take away nothing, nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. And this is a universal truth that has been repeated with every person passing away through all time in history. People can leave things behind for others, but they cannot take anything with them beyond the grave. Naked as they came, naked they go, and they have nothing to show for all their work. And so certainly money underdelivers, and Solomon describes this for what it is. This is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there? What profit? What advantage is there to him who works so hard? So now this begs the question, please, what is the good news in all this, Albert? And so we have to ask the question, how does Jesus redeem money? Let's be clear. Money in and of itself is not evil. Even Solomon here, before Christ, before Paul, he's saying that the love of money, looking to money as a functional God in your life, that's what's going to get you into trouble. And so what Jesus beautifully does is he redeems money so that we can use it, that we are masters over it, not the other way around. And we can use it for true good and generosity in this life. Now Solomon here, even in this passage, he starts to give clues of his hope. He doesn't say Jesus explicitly, but he begins to think about ideas and, and situations that long for this Jesus. So let's go back to verse 9. He has this curious phrase, and all the commentators are, are confused. What does Solomon actually mean here? And in verse 9, after speaking of the oppression of the poor and officials above officials and higher powers and so forth, then he throws in this statement, but this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. What could he possibly mean by that? The question that's begged is, who is this king? Who is this king that he suddenly speaks of? And a king committed to cultivated fields. Now this word cultivated here, if you just take it literally, 
this Hebrew word. This is a fair paraphrase of this description of this king. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to serving and getting his own hands dirty in the fields. This is what Solomon is describing in poetic language. A king who's willing to come off his high throne, take off his silk garments, or perhaps even in his silk robes, to get down with all the laborers, the poor, the ones that are being oppressed, and to do the hard work with them. Get his own hands dirty with them in the fields. Who is this king? Jumping to verse 12, Solomon speaks of, sweet is the sleep of a laborer. And this word laborer literally means servant. Someone who is, their role in life is to work for another person, to work for the good of another person. So sweet is the sleep of a servant, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich. He's speaking of the person who, this man who kept riches, covenanted with riches to his hurt and then lost it all in a bad venture. And he says here, but the full stomach of the rich will not sleep. Why? Because this notion of full stomach, it carries with it the, the, the notion of self-serving. That all they're interested in is to gratify themselves, to be selfish, and to, uh, even at the expense of others. Do you see the contrast? Sweet is the sleep of a servant, someone who is living for another person's good, contrasted to someone who's living just for their own good. And hoarding it for themselves. So even though their stomach is full, there's still something missing in their life. And so we need to ask, who is this servant laborer that that Solomon is hoping of, dreaming of, describing here? This sweet person. And then in verse 13, he goes on to describe that there's this grievous evil that he sees under sun. And it's repeated all through history that people covenant with, with riches, look to it as a functional God, but basically they're left with nothing and even describes this family situation. It's good if, if a parent can leave an inheritance for their children. That's a good thing. It means that they've been wise. They've been thinking of the future and preparing in advance and out of a motivation of love for their descendants. And so what Solomon really is begging is the opposite. Can we picture Someone who gives up his riches, not hoarding it for all himself or herself, and his goal in life is to share it with others. And so I'm not espousing rewriting the Bible here, but just to, to see this, these verses from the other side, from the opposite angle. Imagine that riches were not kept by their owner to his earth. Imagine that those riches were not lost in a bad venture. And imagine that there's this father who has a son, but not that he has nothing to give him, but everything to give him. And so it begs the bigger question, who gave up his riches to share with us? Who is a father who has a son to whom he wants to give everything to share his glory? Now just to belabor the point all the more, I get excited about this because as I read even Ecclesiastes, I see so much of, of the gospel and God and, and just pointing to the fulfillment in Christ. And, and so we ask the question, who is the one person who takes everything with him after death? Because the grievous evil that Solomon saw was that every human being in this life, they leave as they came, naked, 
And so he's imagining from the opposite angle, imagine that there's actually a person who could take everything, who could show everything for his toil, that could carry away with his hand. And he reverses this grievous evil that we can't take anything with us. Now, Russ shared about this soldier price, and he was the last soldier to die in the Great War, the First World War. One of my uh, veteran friends, he did a few tours in Afghanistan, and I remember I just joked, oh, that's a first world problem. And he threw out the line to me, right away, someone laid down his or her life for your first world problem. And I know we joke about first world problems, but that came at a cost, and it gave me a brand new perspective. And Price is such one man, and he's famous because, and he's remembered because he was the last man to die, to lay down his life for our great freedom. Now there's another man, and he's not the last man. Scripture calls him the firstborn, the first fruit of the gospel, the first fruit of God's salvation. And so this man, all the questions we've been asking, who is it that was the one person who will take everything with him into eternity? Who is the one person who is willing to share everything with him, with us? Who is the one person who was actually at first went on a bad venture? It seems like a bad venture, laying down his life for sinful man. People, even Christians, as we are just progressively maturing, we still stumble and fall, and yet he loves us again and again and again. And in some sense, it might seem like a bad venture to lay down your life for the sins of humanity. And who is the father who has everything to give to his son? It's God the Father. And where Price was the last man to die, Jesus is the first one to be raised from the dead and to be vindicated by God. And so as Ecclesiastes points us to outside of itself to look for answers, here in another book, starting with the letter E, the, the letter to the Ephesians, Paul describes this wonderful truth of the gospel. In him, Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. See, Jesus engaged the greatest war, the greatest battle, the spiritual battle, and the moral battle for our souls for over our sins, and as he shed his blood for the forgiveness of our trespasses, and what? According to the riches of his grace. God is certainly the richest person in this universe because everything comes from him. And from the riches of his grace, Jesus left all his riches, and not just to in a stingy manner, to just give a little handout. But verse 8, which he lavished, he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. And so even Solomon, I believe what his heart, the person that his heart was looking for, longing for, that even his book, Ecclesiastes, was pointing to is Jesus. Now, here's the good news for you and me. This little formula here, if you will. 
See, our place with Jesus, our goodness, our happiness, where we can begin to now experience a, a genuine generosity and, and, and a relationship with money that doesn't consume us, but where we are able to use money in a, as a grateful steward. It's when it's Jesus plus his church, meaning all those who have placed their faith in him, in union with him by grace through faith. It's not just Jesus alone, but he invites us into the story. He invites us to be part of his great work. And so leaves us with the question then, how can I be a grateful steward? How can I, as I'm in union with Christ, by grace through faith, how can I begin to also emulate and live out and overflow Jesus being lavish and sharing all his riches, the riches of his grace with us? How can I live that out in my own life? And so I say to you, beloved of Christ, you are Christ's beloved. That is your identity. That is who the church is, his beloved, the one that he loves, the one that he was willing to go to war for, lay down his life for. Let us display our deepest contentment. A Christ follower endeavors to praise God. If the gospel is real and gaining traction in my life, in my soul, and with my affections, then let there be a deep contentment that just overflows from that. Getting back to Ecclesiastes then, in verse 18, Solomon concludes, Behold, this is his conclusion. This is what he longs for. This is what he wishes the bottom line to be. What I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment. He wants to be able to enjoy everything of life. Even as he works a work that is cursed, that is hard, to find eating and drinking and enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Where does contentment start with then? You need to find that fulfilled desire of all desires. And knowing Jesus, knowing forgiveness of your sins and knowing that the Father loves you, knowing that you're invited to be part of his redemptive work in this life, that is the desire of desires and the fulfillment of all fulfillments. Now, if I'm truthful as a fellow brother in Christ, a fellow sojourner, sometimes you lose sight of that and you still deal with feeling unsatisfied certain days. But I can testify Whenever I set my eyes back on Jesus, whenever I immerse myself in scripture and promises and wordings of the gospel again and again and again, it brings my heart back to the deepest contentment. We're also, if we're going to be grateful stewards, we, we, first we need to come back to that never-ending fountain of contentment in Christ, even if we stray away from it, to come back to it. And now, beloved of Christ, second, let us display our deepest trust. This is how you can become a grateful steward. A steward means someone who serves by being responsible with resources given to them. And we can become a grateful steward if we also have the deepest trust because Solomon, he says here, describes this person who has found contentment because he knows, she knows the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. This person trusts that their entire life is in God's hand. 
And so as you make effort, as you are ambitious, as you are going about with your best effort, your life, and maybe sometimes it might not go as you expected, but you trust that God has you in his good hand. There's a deep trust. And that keeps you in that good place of wanting to continue to make the most of what has been given to you. If you lose sight of that trust, then you'll become someone who feels like a victim. You'll become someone who is whiny and complaining and blaming everyone and everything else in life for your situation. But if you trust, despite what's going on, then you'll still be willing to make the most of what is before you. Third way to live this out practically, beloved of Christ, let us display our deepest gratefulness. Gratefulness, gratitude, a big thank you. Every day, at least once a day, once every 24 hours, to say, God, thank you. Thank you for blank. Because even Solomon sees here, everyone also to whom God has given. God has given. God has given whatever it is you have. We need to remember that everything you and I have is ultimately just a gracious loan from God. Because when this life ends, it's going to be all called back to account with God. Your birthplace, your gifts and talents, your connections. Some of us might say, well, no, I did this. I studied hard. I you know, went out and found this connection, knocked on this door. But if you go back, just like a domino effect, cause and effect, you go back to the very beginning. I mean, who gave you, who, who brought you into a certain family with certain resources that you could get a certain education? Who gave you strength in your body to be able to walk and, and a brain that is working and so forth to do all these things? Ultimately, everything has been given by God. So I love Paul's very practical exhortation, teaching, just how we should live and and he says in his letter to Timothy, in the sixth chapter, as for the rich in this present age, and let me just say, according to scripture, according to Deuteronomy, all of us here, all of us here are rich. All of us are here are rich. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, arrogant, proud, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Paul is saying, just paraphrasing what Solomon has said. Don't covenant with riches. Don't covenant with money. Don't set your hopes on money, but on God. Covenant with him. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So as we step in this direction as a grateful steward, let us also display our joyous freedom. Christ followers above all, above everyone else, are meant to have this joyful freedom, a sense of freedom. And so, Solomon describes here, going back to Ecclesiastes now, everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them, an actual ability to enjoy them, to not be that man who kept everything to himself and even though his stomach is full, he can't sleep. There's anxiety. There's, there's still an emptiness. But as we keep Christ 
preeminent in covenant with God as our hope, then we have the power to actually enjoy these things. Even Paul says the same thing in his letter to Timothy. Because we can trust and accept our lot and rejoice. Rejoice. This is the gift of God. This is the gift of God. And God keeps him, even though life might be tough at times, God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart as you keep returning to setting your eyes on Christ and what he's done for you, his lavish grace. Now here is the kicker. Here is the great advantage of the Christ follower. We go to the very end of the book. Scripture, that is, to the Bible. In the second last chapter, in verse 24, there's this wonderful description of the new creation, this reality that we look forward to as Christ followers by its light. And it here, the light here is is Jesus as the final temple. It says that in new creation, there won't be need for any other lights because Jesus himself will be our light. And by its light will the nations walk. These nations obviously are those, all the redeemed from every tribe, tongue, language, every ethnicity who has placed their faith in Christ, and they're being welcomed into his, the final kingdom of God, and even the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And so here is a description, another verse that convinces me that it's not like when Christ comes, then everything will just be reset. There'll be big, this big reset button that he presses, and then we just start all over. But even our work here on earth, whatever you did, even the, the 10 jobs that you might have switched back and forth from, somehow all of that will be taken in to eternity, and God will redeem it somehow, and we'll see concrete expressions of all the work we've done And God redeeming it and saying, well done, my good and faithful servant. Everything you did on earth, it was good as you did it by faith in Christ. And the kings bring their glory, everything that they worked for in this life by faith in union with Christ. As a grateful steward, it will be brought into eternity somehow. This is a great hope. This gives us immense purpose Whatever industry you are in, whether you're in finance, law, you're a homemaker, you're a cook, you're an artist, you're, you're a laborer, whatever it is that it, it gives our imaginations an opportunity to just be blown apart, our minds to be blown. God, I can't even begin to imagine the smile that will be on my face as you show me, as you reveal to me how you'll redeem everything that I've done here. And it'll be a glory that gives you glory and, 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 and satisfies my heart for eternity because it was done by faith unto Christ, for Christ, and because of Christ. And so I hope that gives you motivation. Motivation to be a grateful steward. To take, whether it's literally money, and to think, how can I budget this wisely? How can I apportion, even if it means, as I think of the kingdom of God, to set aside perhaps for certain good causes, for charities, for the church, for the poor, etc. How can I be intentional in being a steward, but also beyond money, all your resources, that you end up on the side of eating and drinking and enjoying because you have great hope that it is all for good and for God's glory. Amen.